And as we get started this morning, we're going to be talking about another parable in our parable series. And it's one that has many names. Some call it the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Some call it the parable of the two sinners. Uh, But what I want to call it is the parable of the two self-made men. Malcolm Gladwell, some of you may be familiar with his writings, he wrote this book a number of years ago called Outliers. And in the book, he kind of breaks down uh, what makes a successful person. Like, if we were to trace enough people and what they had in common, can we figure out what it really takes to be successful? And what he said is, uh, you can boil it down to basically three kinds of factors that go into someone's life. Their environment, the family they grew up in, their culture, where they grew up, the choices that they were, or rather the opportunities that they were given, and the gifts that those opportunities allowed them to employ. And lastly would be just their raw effort and what they brought to the table, how hard they tried. And so what he says, if you look at that, he tells a bunch of stories through his book, and one of the really compelling ones is some of the most iconic successful people in our time. Bill Gates, uh, Steve Jobs, uh, Eric Schmidt of Google. These, these great minds in tech who have gone on to start these incredible companies that we really couldn't do modern life without. He's like, what, what is it that they had in common? Or is, in the, is there anything that they had in common? And what he found was really interesting, which is that they were all born in 1955 which seems kind of an obscure fact at first glance. And then he was like, so what's, what was unique about 1955? Well, if you fast forward 20 years, 1975 was the advent of the personal computer. And being 20 years in 1975, when the personal computer came onto the scene, was the perfect, it's, it's like the... Uh, the perfect Goldilocks time in their life where they had no responsibility and enough uh, confidence. They were out of high school into college where they thought, I can really make something of this. And so you have these people that were they, were, were they born any other time? Sure, they probably would have been successful. But would they have been who they ended up being? Probably not. And so he basically draws this out to say that The self-made man, this American story that we have, is a myth. It's a very popular myth. At best, we can change it and revise it slightly to the myth, or to the the one-third self-made man. A third of those uh, things were in their control, right? They, They could control how hard they tried. That's about it. They couldn't control the family they grew up in or what they were given. But it's, we all crave, uh, this, some sense of this myth in our own lives. It's what we pass down to our children, right? That if you try really hard, you get all your ducks in a row, your life will lead where you want it to lead. We crave that someone will see our lives from the outside looking in and say, yeah, you're, you're doing things right. That's what a right life looks like. And I think that we secretly shudder to think that anything else is true, that there's any other higher truth than the self-made man for how we should organize our lives. But Gladwell clearly pokes a a massive hole in that myth. And our parable this morning pokes an even more profound one, but it also leaves us with a better story. And the story this morning is about two men, two men bringing their self-made statuses to God, the status of what they've made of their lives. 
but with very different measures and outcomes uh, in our parable this morning. So if you read with me, we're in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. Father, I thank you that you have a better word for us this morning than the self-made man and that you want to speak to our hearts. And so I pray that you would, uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would illuminate Jesus in our hearts, that you would lead us to worship, and you would lead us to releasing our grip on the things that prevent us from seeing you sometimes. I pray that you would be with us. In your name we pray. Amen. So this morning we're going to talk about three aspects of the story. We're going to talk about the audience that it was given to. We're going to talk about the characters in the story. And then finally, we're going to talk about the outcome of the story. And so the audience is really interesting uh, because there's no specific people group that's identified. We don't know, was it a group of Pharisees that he targeted in on that he was really talking to? We don't know if there was even a single Pharisee in the group. It could have actually even just been the disciples that were immediately surrounding him. Oh, that part of the story. But what we do know is their shared common belief that Jesus found problematic Uh, Because it starts out the passage telling us that he was speaking to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Righteous. That's a very uh, loaded religious word. Um, But it can be boiled down very simply uh, to in the right. Some who trusted in themselves that they were in the right and looked down on everyone else. And maybe you guys have had moments like this where you notice something about your own life. You're like, oh, that... That thing is going really well. I must just be really good at that. Like, that's, that's pretty great. Uh, you have, there's, like, there's this moment in your heart where there's an opportunity for gratitude, but then something just reaches up and snatches. It's like, no, that's, that's me making myself. There's nothing to be grateful for there. It's just, I'm just really good at, at life. And so I wanted to see, uh, for one of the things that our church also does, is we believe that when we all contribute, that the Holy Spirit speaks something different than if just one person is up here talking. So I have a question for us this morning of what are some of the things in your life that maybe come up every now and then that you use for just that little pat on the back of, wow, I just, I just must be really good at this part of my life, if anyone's willing to share. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And we'll get to that part of the story. <laughs> I think for me, it could be comparing myself to my siblings. Uh-huh. The ones that aren't doing, you know, as well or at the pace that I'm at. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, looking at how my parents are proud of me. Mm-hmm, for sure. 
that sibling rivalry is real, even when you're 38 years old. <laughs> yeah. Comparing my family to other families, mm-hmm. especially the parents, like what priority they put on family and children, because my wife and I have to them really, really high. Mm-hmm. You can hear these stories of parents that don't, and so we feel very superior. Yeah, for sure. That comparison kicks in pretty easily. Anyone else? Professionally as well. Yeah, for sure. Especially in that meeting, it's like, oh my gosh, they don't even see what's happening. They're so dumb, right? You just feel, I feel very superior because I'm, I'm seeing things they're not seeing and they're asking questions that are so obvious and it's just like, my pride is just having a field day. For sure. Yeah, I think it comes up for me at work probably the most. And like, even as I was preparing the sermon, it's like I kept having to slap my hand away and be like, no, that's, it's, it's not just because you're good at your job. Like you're actually, there's something more there and these people are image bearers of God that are worthy of love. Yes, it's hard. Anybody else? I find the things that are my greatest strengths also are the things that, it's like a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. It's almost like they're the same things that hold me back. I think that I'm very good at certain things. I have certain talents that I can dominate a room with, but also that's, it holds me back. Mm. Totally, yeah. It's, it works in my favor. It opens doors, but it also opens doors. I've seen all of my life, so it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting. The, the, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's probably gotten me far, but I think it's also, I, mean, I wonder to myself, if I didn't have those talents, if I would have went actually farther. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like our gifts have a, like a shadow to them. Like some, some people talk about we have, there's our true self and our shadow, and sometimes our gifts that lead us in good directions also have a, an interplay in our shadow self that actually takes away from what God has for us. Yeah, that's really... That's really intuitive. So regardless of what these things are, um, kind of as Bill was alluding to, there's this, this instinct at first to be like, well, what's, what's wrong with that? Like, maybe I am just good at some things. But I think the revealing part is the second half of the statement, which is not only did they trust themselves that they were in the right, but they looked down on everyone else. And so I think there's a heart check for us when we have observations about things that are going well in our lives. Does that lead us to uh, esteem and care for our neighbor? Or does it make us feel more of our stature over them? Does it lead us to a feeling of gratitude for something that God's given us that we have no right to claim as having a right to? Or does it lead us to comparison to saying, my family is just so much better than these other people's family, as Josh shared with us. And I think Jesus has a very clear directive for this posture. The really interesting thing is uh, it's, it's not a new, unique posture, and I think that's why Luke doesn't identify who these people are. It's like he's inviting us into the text to say, these are just some people, any people, 
who viewed themselves this way, who trusted that they were in the right and looked down on others. So put yourself in this chair and let the parable speak to you. So how does Jesus address this posture? He tells a simple story with two characters. So first we have the Pharisee. And I think for us, especially if you've been in the church for any number of years, you're used to the Pharisee almost being a curse word. It's like, well, that's the bad guy, obviously. But for the people hearing this parable, they had the exact opposite response. They were like, this is the hero of the story. Iron Man just came on the scene. He's going like, to fix everything. And so it was completely, they were completely caught off guard by where the parable goes. See, the, par- the Pharisee starts out with a prayer phrased as thanksgiving, but almost immediately the thanksgiving turns into uh, saccharine sweet. And it's not thanksgiving at all. It's comparison and it's uh, self-appraisal of his wonderful self-made status that he's bringing to God. And what the, the interesting thing is why what he, he gives, not only does he say, thank you that my life is so much better than these other people, but he gives a reason, as if he has to remind God why he's so great. And what he says is, I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of everything that I get. See, the Pharisees believed that the world was the way it was, that the, the reason the kingdom of God had not fully come yet, the reason they were still under the impression, oppression of Rome, was that they just weren't keeping the law well enough. And if they could just keep the law better, then things would get better. And so in order to do that, they're like, well, maybe we need to, maybe Moses didn't really give us all of the commandments. Maybe like the, the Old Testament law is incomplete, and we'll just add some stuff to it, and that'll help get us there. So instead of fasting once a week, as the law says, I'm going to fast twice a week, so I'll get double the blessing. Instead of tithing on the money that I've been paid, I'm going to tithe on that, and then I'm going to go out and buy my groceries. And when I get home, I'm going to tithe a tenth of my bread just in case the grocer forgets to tithe what I paid him so that I'm covering everyone's bases. And maybe then I can make the kingdom of God come. Because it it started out from a good place. They generally were like, what can I do? The world is in a bad place. Maybe if I can obey God better, then we'll get to a better spot. But the tax man enters with a very different plan. He comes not even into the temple. The Pharisee comes right into the inner court, stands in the presence of God, and offers his prayer. The tax man stands far off. Right? He, some translations imagine him slumping in the shadows. Many thought that he would have been categorized as one of the unclean, which meant that he wasn't even technically allowed past the East Gate. He was literally on the outside. Um, And the Mishnah, which is the recorded version of the early oral tradition of the Torah, uh, which had many of those added things that the Pharisees had accumulated, it actually said, well, for people like tax collectors, people who are considered the unclean, you don't even actually have to tell them the truth in business dealings. They're, they're subhuman, so swindle them, defraud them, do whatever you need to do, because they're not really people. They're not even allowed in the temple, remember, so just it's okay to keep them on the outside. So this is where, how he's coming to the party, not even, not even allowed in. Um, it's common to lift their eyes in worship. That's, you see the Pharisee doing this, but he can't even lift his from the ground. Uh, 
Instead of offering a, a proper prayer composed, he strikes his chest and he cries out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. See, the words the Pharisees thought, he just walked into the room assuming he was already in the right with God. The tax man walks in, or rather walks to the gate, and assumes he will never be in the right with God. So he's pleading for mercy. He casts himself fully on the mercy of God, knowing his own sin, knowing everything about his life, and knowing not only that, but knowing that all of society knows everything about his life that's brought him to this point. Whereas the Pharisee's commending himself and his self-made status before God, the tax man is asking for mercy for what he's made of himself. Have mercy, he says. And this phrase can be translated a few other ways. It can also be translated, God, turn your wrath away from me. I see he's rightly uh, surmised that his, where he's at in life and the pain that he feels and everything he's going through is both the cause and the effect of lacking favor or some distance from God. And he's assumed that there's nothing he can do to fix this, and so he casts himself on the mercy of God. Striking his chest, God, make this pain go away. Do anything. And the other way it can be translated is, God, make atonement for me which is another loaded religious word, but can be simplified into at one meant. He's saying, God, I want to be one with you. I don't want to be far off, separated anymore. Do anything it takes to bring me near, to bring me into your presence. See, I'm not sure what any of us are carrying today, what pain you came in here with, uh, that makes it feel sometimes uh, like you're lacking favor from God. Or what it is that makes you feel far off or distant. Um, but in the parables outcome, parables outcome, Jesus has a word for all of us this morning. He says, I tell you, this one, the one crying out for mercy, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other. Justified, declared just, declared to be in the right. Uh, the one who never had any hope of attaining a right life or a right status before God is revealed to already possess it. And the one who stood far off and had no right to approach God is revealed to be already in God's very own heart. And the cries that he makes are vindicated, not as evidence of his hopelessness, uh, but evidence of his salvation. And that's what we're after, right? If we were to boil it all down, what we need in our day-to-day life, even what Matt was uh, alluding to, the, thing, the so many things that surround us of, of reminders of things that aren't going well, things that we need rescue from, the pain that we experience, the feelings of being far off, um, salvation is what we're after. And I think that's why our myth of the self-made person is so powerful, because it offers a way forward. 
But what do I mean by saved? What is, it that, what is it that he's really talking about? And there are two stories, interestingly, on either side of this that kind of act as bookends to this parable. With some of the exact same wording is what we see in the tax man's prayer. And the first is, uh, as Jesus is going down the road, he encounters 10 lepers, and they all, standing far off, cry to him, Jesus, Master, have mercy on me. And the interesting thing is, they continue going, or rather nine out of the 10 keep going, not even really aware that Jesus has healed them. Some of them are beginning to. One of them, though, the Samaritan, the one who really has no right uh, to approach a rabbi, he comes to Jesus in worship, glorifying God with gratitude. And Jesus has words for this one of the, the ten that was healed. And his words are, your faith has saved you. And so the other nine were healed, but they missed out on the faith that Jesus commends as saving. The faith that not only heals the physical wounds, but heals even the invisible ones. The faith that has the power to liberate. And the second story is immediately following the parable. And just Jesus going around the crowd, he hears someone crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the people in the front of the crowd shouted this guy, like, be quiet, don't trouble the master. But he continues all the more shouting, Jesus, have mercy on me. And finally, Jesus hears him. And as he, come, as he comes to him, he says, let that man come to me. And as he sees him, he asks the question, what is it that you want me to do for you? And Jesus already in that moment has seen what the man needs because the man is blind. So Jesus isn't asking, what, what do you need? What's wrong with you? He's asking about the man's faith. And the man cries out. He doesn't even say what to do, how Jesus should do. He just says, I want to see. And his words evidence a heart that believes that no matter what it takes to make someone like him be able to see that Jesus can do that. And Jesus says the same thing. Your faith has saved you. And the man instantly begins to see and glorifies God. See, I think a lot of times, especially in a lot of uh, church circles, we make this idea of justification a theological idea. But that's not at all what we see in the passage. There's a, there's a theological element to it. But more than anything, this is a reality-altering, transformative experience where these people are brought from bondage to liberation, from woundedness and sickness to healing, uh, into complete and utter salvation. See, Jesus saves us not only in the age to come, but he saves us now. I think we tend to spiritualize the words of Jesus a lot, as if he's, his life was allegorizing some ethereal reality in the future. But it's the opposite is true. Every writer after Jesus was putting theoretical concepts to the physical embodied gospel of the kingdom that Jesus' life brought. 
Jesus doesn't say, I will save you someday, or that your faith will save you someday. He says, your faith has saved you. So what is this kind of faith that he's talking about? I think it's patterned, obviously, after the men who have it. It's patterned after the tax collector. It's patterned after the one Samaritan leper. And it's patterned after blind Bartimaeus. Faith is crying out in mercy, in humble honesty, bringing our self-made state to God, not supposing that any of us could or would commend us to God. Faith is refuge-seeking fundamentally. It's trusting in Jesus as the only one who can heal and save us and set us free from what ails us. And how does our faith set us free, really? I think the implication of the story is that as long as we're trusting in ourselves that we're in the right, it is impossible to be free. Because when you succeed, you're bound to continue succeeding so that you can maintain your status a comparison and looking down on others. And when you fail, you experience a shame far worse than what the tax collector experienced. At least he knew there was nothing about himself that would commend him to God. But when we fail from a self-made status where we're resting everything that makes us right, we're condemned internally by our own psyches. See, as long as our sense of rightness, sense of being in the right, is tied to what we make of ourselves, uh, we'll never be secure. We'll always be tossed to and fro. See, justification, this idea that he was justified, can also be translated as he was set free. He was released from control of. The man went down to his house, released from the control of his sin. And when we come to Jesus, you can be too. And Hebrews Hebrews assures us of this reality, that Jesus became a man. He became the tax man. He became the leper. He became the blind man. It says he he had to be made like them fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people at one mint. Jesus came to the east gate, to the place where the unclean stood. And you who are far off, slumping in the shadows, can now be brought near by the blood of Christ. And that's the good news. And this idea of atonement, uh, one of the early church fathers, Irenaeus, first gave some of the earliest definitions of what this means as people were trying to, to grapple with the idea of how does Jesus' sacrifice remove our sin and bring us to God? And what he said was this, God became what we are that he might bring us 
to be even what he is himself. Which can be summed up as God became like us to make us like him. And that's what we see in the story. The one who humbled himself has been exalted, Jesus. And when we humble ourselves, we share in his exaltation. We're justified. He carries our sins and iniquities. Uh, We become his portion, his very own possession, brought into the inner heart of God. Isaiah, Isaiah 53 says, because of his wounds, we are healed, saved, set free, and exalted ones. And see, this is the better story, that we are not making anything of ourselves, nor should we. There's no, no way that we can. But the good news is that when we come to Jesus, we see that God became like us to make us like him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you didn't leave us uh, at the east gate, slumped in the shadows of our sin, um, separated and far off. But you came and you stood in our place and you took the ramifications of all of the sin of the world so that it could be brought to nothing, so that our sin could be put to death and we could be given your life. Uh, Jesus, we thank you that you came for us. Uh, We thank you that you are the humbled one who is now exalted at the right hand of God. Jesus, and we pray that you would cause us to share in this reality with you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.